0: Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. We are continuing our discussion of the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the events that led to the creation of the modern Middle East. So, to recap, excuse me, to recap last episode, we discussed uh, Winston Churchill's rise through the British government. We also discussed the events as Europe began to slide into World War I. We discussed Winston Churchill's confiscation of those two Ottoman warships that the British were supposed to uh, build and sell to the Ottomans the Ottomans, uh, they used their neutrality to force certain concessions from both the Axis and the Allied powers. They also kind of manhandled the Germans into selling them two new warships. And in doing all this, Churchill, Winston Churchill, that is, became kind of suspicious of the Ottomans' relationship with the Germans. And so, in this episode, we're going to pretty much discuss the events that led, that pretty much brought the Ottomans into the war and the British reaction. So things began first by, right now we're roughly in September, October 1914, and by this time, Britain had officially entered the war. Germany we've discussed how germany and and russia and serbia and the austro-hungarian empire or kingdom and uh france had gotten into the war we discussed all those things last week in um so now germany's in the war and so they want to attack france in order to attack france they have to go through belgium and so they asked belgium for permission to go through their territory and of course belgium refuses and so germany forces their way through belgium germany is at this time much more powerful than belgium and so germany forces their way through german kills a bunch of german so i'm sorry belgian soldiers but the thing is that belgium had an alliance with britain and so when germany invades belgium they essentially did invade belgium in order to attack france when germany did this Uh, Britain, which had an alliance with Belgium, now declared war on Germany and added to the whole conflagration that is going on. And so now Britain is in the war. In the early stages of the war, it was beginning to look like Germany might actually easily beat Russia. Russia is a huge country. I know I'm pretty sure you're aware of it on the map. Um, I hope if you listen to a history podcast, you have a, a decent idea of geography of a country like Russia. Anyway, Russia was a huge country, lots of natural resources, but it was much, much weaker than People thought. And we spoke about this before how even the Japanese, which was an upstart power, up and coming power, had beaten Russia and Japan is way smaller than Russia is in terms of size and, and population and many other things. Japan is way smaller than Russia. And yet they beat Russia, showing just how weak Russia actually was. The thing about Russia at this time, it was not communist Russia. It was ruled by the czars. And I forgot the name of the royal family that ruled it, the Romanova Romanovs, I think I may be wrong, but I forgot the name of the family. I think it was the Romanovs who ruled them. Romanov dynasty. Be that as it may, whichever dynasty ruled Russia at this time, they were completely messing up the administration, the ruling of Russia. Russia was, its infrastructure was just horrible. And Russia has had a long history of taking a long time to ramp up their military maybe because of the logistics problems maybe because of the economic issues but they had this huge swath of land that's under their control however they've always had a hard time bringing it all together to focus on a single enemy or And once they actually did, however, bring it all, bring it all together, then Russia became formidable. Once they got the wheels rolling, Russia could crush pretty much anyone. But it just took a long time for those wheels to start running. So in these early stages, Germany is just whipping Russia left and right. So Germany had already defeated Russia at the Battle of Tannenberg in late August. They had taken several thousand, several hundred thousand Russian soldiers as prisoners. And they were also whipping Russia at a whole bunch of different other locations. So at this time, the uh, momentum is on Germany's side. They beat Belgium. And now they're beating Russia and they look to be bearing down on France and Britain is still far away. And, you know, Britain's only real advantage and this may not even really be an advantage is in the sea. And, you know, things are starting to look like Germany might make a go of this. Meanwhile, in the Ottoman Empire, Cup, which was the Committee for Unity and Progress, which was colloquially known as the Young Turks, they were watching these events and they're divided into various different factions. CUP or the Young Turks pretty much runs the Ottoman government at this point of time. Some members within CUP wanted to go to war and others did not. However, the vast majority of the Ottoman parliament and the actual people running the government, they wanted nothing to do with this war. They wanted to stay out of it. In particular, the Grand Vizier, which was uh, something like a prime minister in other countries, the Grand Vizier, he was adamantly against going to war and he wanted to keep the Ottoman Empire out of the war. However, and there's always a a however, three men within the Young Turks party, they held the most influence and they kind of did want to go to war. These three men became known as the three Pashas. And the word Pasha is uh, it means, it's something like a general. It means like a, basically means general. So it's these three generals who were essentially politicians now who wanted to bring the Ottoman Empire into the war. And so let's discuss these three Pashas. The most influential member of the Young Turks was a man named Enver Pasha. You could translate Enver Pasha to mean General Enver. Anyway, his full name was Ismail Enver, and Enver was essentially the leader of the Young Turks. And he was also the Ottoman minister of war, and he wanted to enter the war. The second influential member of the Young Turks movement was Jamal Pasha. His full name was Ahmed Jamal. And so if his name is Jamal Pasha, consider, just translate that as General Jamal. Anyway, Jamal Pasha, he was the Ottoman minister of the Navy, and he also wanted to enter the war. And then finally, there was Mehmed Pasha, whose, fear, whose full name was Mehmed Talat. He was the minister of the interior, and as far as the government was concerned, he had the most power within the Ottoman government, being just as his position as minister of the interior. Initially, he did not really want to go to war at first, but he was he was eventually won over by the other two Pashas. So these early German victories, they convinced Enver Pasha, who was once again the minister of war, they convinced Enver Pasha that the Ottomans needed to enter the war on the side of the Germans. Russia who the germans were fighting they had always been the ottoman empire's most dangerous enemy the ottoman empire had been swiping territory from i'm sorry the russians had been swiping territory from the ottoman empire for decades even going on centuries now they shared a border with the ottoman empire and they were antagonistic towards towards each other and the only thing keeping the Ottomans sorry keeping the russians from invading the ottomans fully was that the british had propped up the ottoman government for a long time or the ottoman military for a long time and so the ottomans of course saw this as a well in Pasha, i should say he saw this as an opportunity for the ottomans to gain some of this territory that the russians had stolen from them or taken from them over the over the several past decades and centuries and also to stick it to the um, ottomans most um most fervent foe most dangerous foe so Enver was concerned that if the ottomans did not actually enter the war on the side of the germans they might actually miss out on capturing territory and so he began to push the ottoman government into declaring war or somehow entering the war so inver he had to convince the young turks many of whom did not want to go to the war and the ottoman government whom outside of the three pashas generally did not want to go to war either he had to convince them to enter the war and this is where britain's ignorance of ottoman politics hurt them we mentioned before in uh, i think maybe the first episode how the british were ignorant and unknowing and misunderstood Ottoman politics and even worse than that they did not know what they did not know they thought they had a handle on Ottoman politics based on certain assumptions and certain people who were living within Constantinople and was feeding information back to the British but they really had no true understanding of how things really worked had the British understood things better they might have been able to keep the Ottomans out of the war because A good faction, a good chunk of the Ottoman government, probably perhaps even most of the Ottoman government, including the prime minister, did not want to enter the war. But those three pashas, really those two pashas, they really did. So Enver, he eventually convinced Mehmed Talat or Mehmed Pasha to support the war cause. And remember Mehmed Pasha, he was the minister of the interior. And Enver was able to convince uh, Mehmed to support the war. So now you have three Pashas who want the war and Jamal Pasha was already on board. So now Enver, he began to talk with the Germans about how the Germans could help make it easier for the Ottomans to enter the war. And he tells the Germans that the uh, they would need to give the Ottomans two million Turkish pounds in order to support the war effort. And the Germans, they were already prepared for this. They had been in the Ottoman territory for many years. They knew the Ottoman government pretty well, and they knew the Ottomans would collapse if they tried to field this, um, a full scale military against these powerful European powers without some sort of financial assistance. And so the Germans sent the Ottomans the money that they needed by train so once the ottomans received the money some of them decided to renege on the fact because once again enver pasha he was doing the talking for the ottoman government but the ottoman government for the most part did not really want to enter the war and so once they received the money enver was thinking that well now that we got the money we have no choice but to help our german friends however um Most of the government still refused to enter the war, and some of them wanted to keep the money and still not enter the war. They didn't want to return the the money back. So Enver he saw now that just getting money from the Germans wouldn't be enough to convince the Ottoman government to enter the war. He decides he's going to have to go a little bit further. So he makes the decision to initiate an attack against the Russians. So he ordered those two ships that they quote unquote bought from the Germans. Remember, we discussed this in the last episode. He ordered those two warships to fire on the Russians. And this took place on October 29th, 2014. I'm sorry. (laughs) October 29th, 1914. Once again, it's uh, not heavily edited. So I'm not taking that out anyway. So these ships who were under Ottoman control, they were mostly um, manned and controlled by the Germans because the Ottoman Navy, Ottoman, Ottoman sailors, didn't have the expertise required to manage these two ships. The Germans had sold them to them because the Ottomans had twisted their arm. And we discussed this last last week about how the Ottomans had to, or how the German soldiers had to formally enlist in the Ottoman uh, military and even Don Ottoman um, uniforms. So these, so anyway, so now Enver orders these two ships to begin attacking Russian territory. And the plan was for these two ships, which were mostly manned by Germans, to attack a Russian warship and then say that they were attacked first in order to kind of give them some sort of cover however the Germans had another idea they were also tired of the Ottomans playing around and and saying they're going to get into the war but not getting into the war of their divided government the Germans wanted to force the Ru- the Ottomans into the war also so instead of attacking the Russian uh, ships in which they could put forth put forth a lie and say that they had been attacked first instead, the German soldiers who controlled these two Ottoman ships, they began attacking the Russian coast. There's no way you could say the beach fired at you first. Okay. No way you could say these farming villages fired at you first. And this was so, and this is so that the Ottomans would be forced to enter the war because now the Russians would, the Russians obviously would retaliate. And now this was, um, the game was on. And there's no way for the Ottomans to back out now. And so when this happened, this set off a, a hailstorm in the in Constantinople. Remember, most of the government didn't want to go to the war. They had no desire for this. They had no knowledge of, of Inver Pasha's plan. They did not approve this attack on the Russian coast. They didn't even t- approve the first attack on the Russian warships. All these things were happening without the vast majority of the Ottoman government approving it. And so now a whole bunch of debating and politics and arguments start happening, happening within Constantinople. The different um, young Turk factions, those who wanted to go to war and did not want to go to war, they start arguing with each other and debating. The Grand Vizier, who was like a prim- prime minister, the Grand Vizier and the cabinet, they finally decide to send a formal apology to Russia in order to hopefully mollify russia and keep russia from retaliating and having things escalate even further so they send this message to apologize to russia but but in Pasha he intercepts the apology rewords it and then sends it on and when he re- rewords it he rewords it to place the blame on russia Russia, of course, when they received this quote-unquote apology, they rejected and began to mobilize and prepare for war against the Ottomans. And so by this time, it's pretty much too late for the Ottoman government to try to turn things back as soon as Churchill heard about the attack. He ordered the British Navy to start attacking Turkish assets on October 31st. We mentioned that he was already suspicious and on on edge about the Russian-German relationship. He's already really concerned about that. He just wanted the Ottomans to do something to to give him the excuse to wage war. And this gave him that excuse. And so he ordered the British Navy to start attacking um, Turkish assets on October 31st and then russia having rejected the ottoman apology they began they declared war on the ottomans officially on november 2nd 1914 and then three days later november 5th 1914 the british officially declared war on the ottomans also And so let's leave Constantinople and move on to London. In London, Churchill was being blamed for pushing the Ottomans into the war. He was being uh, he was blamed for alienating and upsetting the Ottomans by confiscating their two their two ships that the British were supposed to have built for the Ottomans. And the British also believed that the Germans had sold those two ships which attacked the Russians to, in order to make up for the two ships that Churchill had confiscated. And so Churchill was getting a lot of blame. Um, they believed that this, these moves by the, um, by Churchill ultimately convinced the Ottomans to side with Germany. However, we now know that in Pasha he wanted to go to war in the first place and he kind of, he really was one who started the whole mess and dragged or pushed or pulled, however you want to call it. He forced the Ottomans into this war with his machinations. Furthermore, um, while Churchill does, re, does deserve his share of blame because the dude was a warmonger, the ottomans had already signed an alliance with the, with germany even before the ships had been confiscated and we discussed all that in the last episode so now churchill he is he is angry at at the turks he hates the ottomans he hates the turks and he is ready to go to full scale war against them so first things first with all the politics now all the politicians now casting blame on churchill he has to defend his actions and he said that uh, Entering, he tried to make the argument that entering the war or forcing the Ottomans to enter the war was actually, actually a good thing. He said by having the Ottomans enter the war, this would convince some of their historical enemies, particularly the Balkan states, this would convince the Balkan states to join the war on the side of the Allies against the Ottomans and the other um, Axis powers. One of these was also, though they're not a Balkan state, there was also Italy, which in Italy was a burgeoning power right now, it was starting to enter the ranks of the major European powers. And Italy was looking for more territory. And they had, we mentioned how they'd already taken some territory, I believe the Libyan coast from the Ottomans. And we spoke about this in the last episode. But now they wanted to expand more. And if the Ottomans entered the war, this might, the, uh, the prospect of new territory might convince the Italians to enter the war on the side of the allies also. Then you also have all the other Balkan states who never liked the Ottomans in the first place. These included the Greeks, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, and the Serbs. All these guys now who were potential um, British allies who they could use in the war against both the Ottomans and the Germans as well. And this would also... Just like the Italians, the British could, this was Winston Churchill's argument, that is, Winston Churchill argued that just like the Italians wanted to expand their territory, they could perhaps entice these Balkan states to enter the war with the promise of captured Ottoman territory. Nonetheless, despite the criticism heaped upon Winston Churchill, once the British knew that they were going to war against the Ottomans in true British fashion, they resolved to do it and carry it out as thoroughly as possible. And we mentioned before earlier today how the British had propped up the Ottomans to act as a buffer uh, between their crown jewel, the um, India and India. as a, as a buffer between India and Russia. And before the war, before, uh, the, in the few months leading up to the war, we also mentioned how the British had been working hard to keep the Ottomans neutral. And during this period of time when they were, were, um, were giving in to Ottoman demands in order to remain neutral, Churchill had always felt that the British were focusing on the ottomans unnecessarily they were putting too much unwarranted focus on the ottomans once again he was probably suspicious that they were working with the germans anyway and so with this happening he and the british most of the british government was trying to keep the ottomans out of the war churchill had pretty much decided it was a lost cause he thought that they should actually be worrying about they should be um Focusing more on the Balkans and getting the Balkan states to side with the British rather than worrying about the Ottomans the Ottomans because he had pretty much figured they were on Germany's side anyway But now all those feelings that the British had of propping up the Ottomans and and uh, keeping them neutral all this stuff was out the window They were ready the British were ready to go to war and they were intent on defeating the Ottomans and dismantling the Ottoman Empire And they saw this, of course, as an opportunity to gain some of that Ottoman territory in the Middle East. And as we mentioned before, this was something that most of the European powers, the British included, figured would happen anyway because the Ottoman Empire was, once again, the sick man of Europe and was barely, barely entering the modern age. And this ideology, this um, preconception, this idea that the... European powers would ultimately have to take over the remnants or pieces of the Ottoman Empire. Eventually, this idea that this uh, this idea that the Middle East was predestined to become European territory this was the beginning of the creation of the modern Middle East. This brings us to one of the most important players in this war, a man named Horatio Herbert Kitchener. So Kitchener, at the start of the war, he was the proconsul of Egypt, which is something like the a governor, basically, for the British. The Egypt was still technically and officially a part of the Ottoman Empire, but the British had been occupying Egypt for decades. And so the Egyptian prince, who was called a Khadiv... He ruled, he was supposed to rule Egypt on behalf of the Ottomans, but instead he was essentially a mouthpiece for the British. And in his uh, talking and dealings with the British, the British learned that this Khadiv, this prince, he hoped to one day break away from the Ottomans. And he even entertained ideas of taking over Mecca and Medina. And once he had those two cities, he could establish his own caliphate. And the British, they were egging him on they were encouraging him to do so they were hoping he would do so and they promised to be there for him if he ever did that going back to kitchener now he was a legend in britain He had won many battles and on behalf of the British Empire, he had helped to expand the British Empire. He had won battles in Sudan in the Boer War, which was in South Africa. He had defended British interests in Egypt against the French, and he had even once commanded the British military in India. The reason why he was such a legend in Britain was that there was a journalist who followed him around and chronicled his exploits and lionized him or wrote these fanciful stories about him, about him and his achievements in the press. And so his legend has spread through um, through Britain, through the British Empire, as this great warrior on behalf of the British, on behalf of the British crown. But anyway, once it was certain that the um, the British were going to go to war against the Ottomans, Lord Kitchener was summoned back to London and the British government, particularly the British uh, Prime Minister, he wanted Kitchener's advice on the war effort because Kitchener was there in the Middle East. And so it was assumed that he had much more information about the situation and and a much better understanding against their enemies than anyone else kitchener for his part he did not really want to return to london he preferred to stay in india what he really really wanted was to one day be the viceroy the british viceroy in india which is pretty much like a a governor also but a huge huge governor i guess a controlling controlling a lot more land than just egypt and he, when he was summoned back to London, he did obey, but he refused to stay in London as just an advisor. And he told the prime minister that the only way he would stay was, was if he was made secretary of war. He wanted to be in charge of the entire war effort. The prime minister at first didn't really want to do this. And the reason being is that in these situations, when there's warfare, it is usually the secretary of war that gets all the publicity and not the prime minister. And so, but the prime minister eventually he agreed because the British at this point of time, like many others, were thinking this would be a short war. And so the prime minister agreed to make Kitchener the uh, secretary of war and put him in charge of the British war effort. To Kitchener's credit, he was one of the few British officials, however, who predicted a long war. He announced to everyone's surprise that the war would actually take at least three years. And he was correct in that. He also warned that the war would not be won at sea, but that it it instead would be won by these very uh, bloody and life draining land battles. And he was right about that. And most of the British government, they thought that the current British army as it was, was large enough. But Kitchener, giving his foresight, he insisted on expanding it and he wanted to raise half a million soldiers however most people thought that couldn't be done because they believed that only way the only way the british could raise an army out of nowhere basically with um uh, of half a million soldiers only way they could do that was through conscription basically the draft forcing young men to go out and fight kitchener however to his credit once again he was able to raise this army half a million soldiers all volunteers, no conscription. And so he defied quite a few odds at the time. Kitchener, however, he did not believe the Ottomans would be a significant factor in the war. And I haven't really read far ahead in the book yet. I don't know a whole lot about the World War I. But from the sounds of it, it, didn't, it doesn't seem as if the Ottomans really were a... Deciding factor in World War One, so Kitchener might have been correct about this also, but we'll see how 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 things play out. I'm not a World War One expert, but I guess we all will be by the time we finish this series. Anyway, Kitchener he did not really um, expect the Ottomans to really play a factor in the war. Instead, he had his own plans about what to do with the Middle East once once that land was taken away from the Ottomans, and he's also part of this whole creation of the modern Middle East. Unfortunately for the British, both Kitchener and the British government in general, they really had a very limited understanding of the Middle East, and just like the Ottoman government, the British thought they knew more than they actually knew. It's bad enough when you don't know. It's even worse when you don't know that you don't know. And the British did not know. They knew very little about the Ottoman Empire. They knew very little, little about the Middle East. They had very little knowledge about the terrain they were fighting in at the time. There was not a single English language book on the history of the Ottoman Empire. The only one that was available for uh, to the British for them to try to understand their new foe. The only one that they had was based on a German study from years earlier. And even that one. That history had stopped at 1744, the year 1744. We're now in 1914, so it was over almost 250 years out of date. And so, because the British government had such limited knowledge of the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire, they deferred to Kitchener, whom they thought, because he had such a a legendary Um, reputation because he has spent so much time in Egypt and he had fought in all these different battles in the east and for the British they consider all the stuff to the east Egypt and South Africa and India because of all this they defer to to Kitchener and Kitchener was given wide authority to conduct affairs in the Middle East as ever however he saw fit even though he was actually in London now Kitchener himself, he also thought he was an expert on on Middle East, on the Middle East, but he really, really wasn't. He didn't understand. Despite all the time he had spent in Egypt, he really didn't know much about either the Middle East or about the Egyptian people that he stayed among or about any of his surroundings nor the terrain. He didn't know the different tribal alliances, the different ethnic groups within the Middle East, the, the different, the way uh, Arabs in, Arab, in the Arabian Peninsula and Arabs in Egypt thought differently about certain things. He did not know any of this. Like many other people, he lumped all the Arabs into one big pot and thought that uh, he could make assumptions about them based on what little knowledge he he actually had. But even for the Arabs in Egypt, the Egyptians themselves kitchener didn't really understand them kitchener for one thing he was now in london now and so most of the uh, middle east war effort during world war one was conducted by kitchener where he would give orders but he would pretty much just pass vague orders to his lieutenants and subordinates who were still living in cairo and egypt these subordinates and most of the british They were mostly diplomats and all, but they lived in this small Anglo bubble in Cairo where they only they didn't really mix with the locals. They didn't necessarily learn Arabic. Maybe a few of them did, but most of them did not. And they pretty much lived in their own Anglo diplomatic bubble where they pretty much just communicated with egyptians only as much as necessary and mostly dealt with each other and didn't really know how egyptian society or arab society or culture worked at all and so kitchener he would give orders and his aides and subordinates who were in egypt they pretty much just tried to follow his orders as best as they could remember this is 1914 and so technology is there they have they have telephones and telegraphs and stuff like that but it's. It's not like what we have today. So there's still a, um, usually a very um, long lag in communication times. And it wasn't necessarily as easy as we may presume it to be. But most of the time, his subordinates in Egypt, they had to do things as they thought Lord Kitchener would do with them. And the, to, to illustrate just how poorly the British knew or understood the um, the Middle East. They did not even have accurate maps of the Middle East nor of Turkey, which is kind of surprising considering how much land the British had conquered at this point of time and how sophisticated and how advanced they were compared to the rest of the world. The British were woefully underprepared for this coming conflict with the Ottoman Empire. And there was also some confusion about how to treat Egypt and Cyprus. Cyprus, the island in the, in the Mediterranean Sea, it, that was also part of the Ottoman Empire, but Britain occupied both of them. And so now that they were technically at war with the Ottoman Empire, it was some confusion about how to handle these two these two pieces of land. Finally, the British decided to treat them as protectorates and help them gain independence from the Ottoman Empire. Their intention was to separate uh, Cyprus and Egypt from the Ottoman Empire and let their respective princes or, or kings or whoever rule those two lands. But the British in- fully intended to rule from the background rule from the shadows basically pull the strings and let the local ruler make uh, pretend basically or make him think let him think that he was in charge whereas the british had every intention of actually running the show from the, from the from the background so that's going to do it for today's episode in the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss some of Kitchener's lieutenants. These will be the men who would, who would wind up executing the war in the Middle East. And we'll see how things go. I haven't gotten there myself, but um, as I learned about it, inshallah, so will you. Until next week, then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a 5-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com/slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfiqar Saroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.